Queen Rain over the course of this term. As you know, she's the um, guiding spirit behind Temenos and uh, really responsible for bringing together that remarkable group of people that we've benefited from uh, during this term and indeed will continue to uh, next term. I first came across the works of Kathleen Ray, not her poetry, I came across um, a book on the work of William Blake. I was doing some research into William Blake at the time and found almost invariably that books on Blake were very partial and seemed to give only a, only a glimpse of the, of the man who had actually done this remarkable range of works and of really what motivated particularly the incredible prophecies which he was known for. And it was only discovering Kathleen's book that uh, led me to believe I'd found a little more of Blake, or a lot more of Blake, uh, in what was written there. And it gave a much, much fuller picture of the man. Um, and I think the, the ideals which inspired Blake have certainly been very close to Kathleen Rain through her life. You may have seen the recent interview in The Oldie, which was published... Uh, also in The Guardian, um, two things uh, stood out as I reread it this morning. Uh, Kathleen's description of herself as at, at odds with the world, and uh, also um, her desire for the restoration of love in its fullest sense. Um, I won't say any more, but I'll hand over now to Kathleen, who will be talking about. Uh, Blake's fourfold vision of London. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to see so many of you whom I already know and, and others whom I know less well, but quite a number of you have been coming to our Temenos lectures and seminars, and I hope you've enjoyed them. You may well wonder why I should be here talking to a group of uh, architects when I know nothing about architecture, properly speaking, except like all ignorant people, whether I like it or not. And uh, that is my only qualification as an architect. But uh, as a uh, lifelong secretary and, and one may say devotee of William Blake, um, Blake knew something about architecture. He was, after all, a, a painter and an engraver, but he knew a great... He had a very clear idea of what a city is. And from that point of view, I think he may have... You may learn something of value uh, to you as architects from his work. Um... So I'm here to speak for my master, William Blake, England's supreme poet of the city. And the city is, after all, the beginning and end of architecture. Blake was born in London in the year 1757, before the Industrial Revolution, and died in 1827, having lived his whole life apart from three years in a cottage at Felpham on the Sussex coast in the city, to whose inhabitants he addressed his great prophetic books.
The last of these, Jerusalem, bears the name of the holy city of the book of Revelation, the city coming down from heaven, which it is the human task to embody on earth. Blake's Jerusalem is the city of the imagination, the work of the golden builders who labor to create on earth a city in the likeness of the invisible world within, for the kingdom of heaven is within. Golden, by the way, because of the four ages, the golden age, the silver age, the bronze age, the iron age, the golden age, of course, is the age of, of full spiritual knowledge. And so the golden builders in London are those who are working towards this uh, restoration of, of the golden age. The outer world, unilluminated by the, un, by the imaginative vision, Blake calls Babylon, biblical symbol of the city of exile, where the Jews lived far from the Holy Land. Jerusalem is the kingdom of the human imagination, which Blake, following his master Swedenborg, calls the divine humanity, who is in all. The city is our human kingdom, our human collective task, never completed, ever building, ever decaying, desolate, in Blake's words. It is for every generation to keep that city in repair, to add to it new works for the soul to inhabit as we inhabit the entire human past. These works embody our deepest knowledge and sublimest visions and in turn serve to awaken their inhabitants to know ourselves as participants in that invisible kingdom we ever seek to embody. For Blake then, the city is above all its people. Every city has a collective life of the many in one and one in many who inhabit and create it over the generations and its own special character. He wrote of the cities of England, Verulam, Canterbury, venerable parent of men, generous immortal guardian golden clad, for cities are men, fathers of multitudes, and rivers and mountains are also men. Everything is human, mighty, sublime. The giant Albion, who is the English nation, reposes among his 28 cities, and Blake names Edinburgh, clothed with fortitude, York, Selsey, Chichester, Oxford, with its healing leaves, Bath, Durham, Lincoln, Carlisle, Ely, Norwich, Peterborough, each with its own character. But Jerusalem is not to be found in any one time or place, but is universal, created wherever humankind is at work. And there are cities not yet embodied in time and space's womb to spring up for Jerusalem. He names America, where there will be planted the seeds of cities and villages in the human bosom. It was this sense, in this sense that Blake's desire was to see England become a holy land, embodying the heavenly archetype. The human story begins in the garden, nature, and ends in the creation of the human kingdom, the city. 
The city is not only its buildings, it is a great energy of creation at work. It comprises not architecture alone, but painting, music and poetry, schools and university, works of science, all expressions in things great and small, which embody our inner and create our outer worlds. In antiquity, cities, Athens, Jerusalem, Florence, Spencer's London Queen of Cities All, were loved and valued by their inhabitants, and banishment was deemed the worst of punishments. Inner city areas had not become a name designating human problems of neglect and desolation. What disaster has befallen us that our cities have become places of alienation and exile? Blake's poem London describes not buildings but people, and already he saw London suffering from a deadly sickness. His words, written at the end of the 18th century, are no less true today. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and see in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. The poem continues with an indictment of war, child labour, the indifference of both church and state to human suffering and the self-righteous respectability blasted by the human, by the youthful harlot's curse. The streets and the river itself are chartered, they are property. Blake was bitter in his protest against these commercial values which already dominated the public domain. Commerce is so far from being beneficial to the arts or to empires that it is destructive to both, and all their, as all their history shows, empires flourish until they become commercial, and then they are scattered abroad to the four winds. It is the arts, works of the imagination, that build great civilizations. And he writes, let it no more be said that empires encourage arts, for it is arts that encourage empires. Arts and artists are spiritual and laugh at moral, mortal contingencies. It is not arts that follow and attend upon empire, but empire that attends and follows the arts. Blake lamented the absence of such enlightened patronage as the papacy and the Medicis, who sent the artists to build and adorn the cities of Italy. It would, for he was a patriot of the imagination, he would have liked to make England what Italy is, an envied storehouse of intellectual riches. Instead, the dark satanic mills of the industrial landscape were already coming into being as the outer reflection of the materialist ideology which was to prevail during the next century and beyond. Uh, Blake's phrase, the dark satanic mills, by the way, does not apply to, to, to what we think of as mills. It applies to the Newtonian system, to the idea of the universe as a mechanism. And uh, the mills are, as it were, the clockwork of, of a material mechanism which is not informed by a spiritual vision. 
And of course, the dark satanic mills as we understand them are a reflection of that very ideology. A century after Blake, that other poet of London, T.S. Eliot, saw the city as a wasteland and described its people as in a Dantesque hell. A crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs short and frequent were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolnoff kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. Eliot's is not a hell of material poverty, but of spiritual alienation. He saw in its outcome what Blake had seen in its causes. Blake's London is what Henri Corbin, that great French Ismaili scholar, has called an emblematic city. By this he means that the outer forms, buildings, districts and regions are correspondences of inner meanings, experiences, visions. It was Corbin who coined the term imaginal, as distinct from imaginary, to designate realities of the world of imagination which, far from being imaginary in the popular sense of the word, unreal, non-existent, are realities of mind. The outer forms mediate, open to us in symbolic language, be these paintings, sculptures, music or architecture, regions of our inner worlds. An emblematic city in Corbin's understanding is a great mediating symbol, at once an embodiment of an imaginative vision and empowered to awaken that vision, that perception of invisible values and meanings in the minds of its inhabitants. In a paper on emblematic cities by the, the uh, to accompany a collection of photographs of Ispahan by the French photographer Henri Stierlin, Corbin writes of Athens as understood by Plato in the Parmenides. It is the Panathenaea, festival of the triumph of the goddess of wisdom over the giants, symbolizing chaos and ignorance that, I quote, brings the philosophers together in a place which no longer belongs to the topography of the world. Athens is an emblematic city. So in the Middle Ages was the city of Compostela, famous place of pilgrimage. Nicolas Flamel, the architect, received enlightenment after a pilgrimage to Compostela, of which Corbin writes, the alchemist's work consists in making apparent what is hidden, a bringing to light which occurs in the first place within the alchemist himself. Such is the preparation demanded for the transmutation of common mercury into philosophical mercury. And it is at Compostela that the transformation takes place. But a city of Compostela, which is no longer situated in the land of Spain, but in that hidden land, which is the innermost being of the alchemist philosopher, Compostela is an emblematic city. 
Corbin then goes on to, Blake, to cite Blake's London as a city where we discover the spirit, the hidden significance of which a body or a building is only one typification. And again I quote, and this is why in the poems of William Blake, amid the jumble of unknown worlds, the turmoil of skies and heavenly beings with strange names, the reader suddenly comes upon places whose names are familiar, unexpectedly inserted into the mystic worlds. For beneath the appearances of day-to-day -day London, William Blake discerns a London more real than the London visible to bodily eyes for which it is accountable. In the buildings, mosques and dwellings and palaces of Isfahan, Corbin sees one of the architectural wonders of the world. He sees as our task the deciphering of the message left us by the builders of Isfahan, a rendezvous at which the mere historical tourist will never arrive, since that message is metaphysical. Blake's London is not like Isfahan or like our own Gothic cathedrals, a message of wisdom left for us to decipher, but rather a work in progress. And Blake writes, I behold London, a human, awful wonder of God. He says, return, Albion, return. I give myself for thee. My streets are my ideas of imagination. My houses are thoughts. My inhabitants' affections, the children of my thoughts, walking within my blood vessels. So spoke London, immortal guardian. And Blake leaves us in no doubt that his visions are embodied in times and places. For the passage ends, I hear in Lambeth's shades. In Felpham, I saw and heard visions of Albion. I write in South Moulton Street what I both see and hear in regions of humanity in London's opening streets. The heavenly Jerusalem can never in the nature of time and change be fully realized, yet she has her secret chambers in the houses of London's inhabitants, her golden builders, and among these Blake's own home in Lambeth, where he and his young wife Catherine lived in the early years of their married life, and where a vine grew unpruned in their small garden. There, Blake's earliest prophetic books were written. We builded Jerusalem as a city and a temple. From Lambeth we began our foundations, lovely Lambeth, lovely hills of Camberwell. And Blake listened to the voices of London, where he heard much that was terrible. Young men conscripted as cannon fodder for the Napoleonic Wars, the chimney sweepers cry, the industrial enslavement of women and children, all the sufferings and injustices of a society from which Jerusalem, the soul, is banished, cast forth upon the wilds of Poplar and Bow, to Malden and Canterbury in the delights of cruelty, the shuttles of death sing in the sky from Islington and Pancras round Marybone to Tyburn's River. 
Tyburn's deathful shades, where boys were hanged for minor offences against property. In the streets of London, not Jerusalem, but Babylon reigned supreme. I behold Babylon in the opening streets of London. I behold Jerusalem in ruins, wandering about from house to house. This I behold, the shuttles of death attend my steps. How different would he have found it now? But Blake was no utopian idealist, nor political campaigner. The foundations of the city are not within the domain of politicians and institutions, but within ourselves, and it is there that the labors of building Jerusalem must begin. What are those golden builders doing? Where was the burying place of soft Ethinthus? Near Tyburn's fatal tree, is that mild Zion's hill's most ancient promontory, near mournful, ever-weeping Paddington? Is that Calvary and Golgotha becoming a, bit, a building of pity and compassion? Lo, the stones are pity, and the bricks well-wrought affections enameled with love and kindness, and the tiles engraven gold, labor of merciful hands. The beams and rasters are forgiveness, the mortar and cement of the work tears of honesty, the nails and screws and iron braces are well-wrought blandishments, and well-contrived words firm fixing, never forgotten, always comforting the remembrance. The floors, humility. The ceilings, devotion. The hearths, thanksgiving. Prepare the furniture, O Lambeth, in thy pitying looms. The curtains, woven tears and sighs, wrought into lovely forms for comfort. There the secret furniture of Jerusalem's chamber is wrought. Lambeth, the bride, the lamb's wife, loveth thee. Thou art one with her, and nurse not of self in thy supreme joy. Go on, builders in hope, though Jerusalem wanders far away without the gate of loss among the dark satanic wheels. Blake's city of the imagination, the city within, of which the material city is an image and expression, he called Golgonusa from Golgos, the skull, for it is to be found in the human brain, in the mind. Its reality is mental and living, human, not a dead world of matter, but a living world of imagined forms. Blake echoes Shakespeare's lines in Midsummer Night's Dream on the nature of imagination. The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. And Blake writes of the builders of Golgonusa. 
Some of the songs of Loss, Loss is the spirit of time, by the way, he is the time spirit. Some of the songs of Loss surround the passions with porches of iron and silver, creating a form and beauty round the dark regions of sorrow, giving to airy nothing a name and a habitation delightful, <coughs> with bounds to the infinite, putting off the indefinite into most holy forms of thought. Such is the power of inspiration. They labor incessant with many tears and afflictions, creating a beautiful house for the piteous sufferer. Gorgonuzo built continually amid the furnaces and anvils of the creative genius, realizing in London Corbin's emblematic city. Here, on the banks of Thames, loss-builded Golganusa. In fears he builded it in rage and fury. It is the spiritual fourfold London, continually building and continually decaying desolate. In eternal labours, loud the furnaces and loud the anvils. Blake City of Golganusa is fourfold. Fourfold because man is fourfold, a truth that since Blake addressed his prophetic words to his uncomprehending contemporaries, C.G. Jung has made familiar to us as a psychological fact. Man's nature is fourfold, inhabiting the four distinct regions of the senses, of feeling, of reason, and of vision. Blake's four living creatures, the four Zoas, whose characters and worlds, conflicts and ultimately, ultimate reconciliation within the divine humanity form the dramatic themes of his prophetic books, correspond in all respects to Jung's perceptions of the archetypal structure of the psyche with its four functions. In the city of the imagination, each of these must find expression and play its part and receive its sustenance within the human city. Reason and feeling, imaginative vision and the living senses. Blake insists on this fourfold structure of Galganusa and every inhabitant is fourfold and every pot and vessel and garment and utensils of the houses and every garment fourfold. Blake devotes many pages to the description of the city of Gorgonusa, its diagrammatic fourfold archetypal structure in the form of a mandala, a mental diagram Jung found to be inherent in the structure of the psyche, and compared to the similar spiritual diagrams familiar in Tibetan and Indian symbolic art. Imagination, then, builds the universe within the sacred enclosure of the city of Golganusa. Outside that city is the lifeless mechanistic world of what Blake describes as single vision and Newton's sleep and the dark satanic wheels of a universe lacking the vertical dimension of humankind's inner and higher invisible worlds a lifeless world in which only the quantifiable is deemed real. 
For Blake, all the four regions of the imagination are living worlds. The material world itself is alive, and every particle of dust breathes forth its joy. Blake saw the scientific materialism, which was to become the dominant ideology of the 19th century, as a hell cut off from life. Plato wrote of humankind unilluminated by a vision of the real as prisoners living in a cave where they could see only shadows cast on the wall of the cage which they took to be reality. Blake takes up Plato's theme in describing the hells which lie outside the city of the imagination. Around Gorgonusa lies the land of death eternal, a land of pain and misery and despair and ever-brooding melancholy. There is the cave, the rock, the tree, the land of Udan Aden, the forest and the marsh and the pits of bitumen deadly, the rocks of solid fire the valleys, the plains of burning sand, the rivers, cataracts, and lakes of fire, the islands of the fiery lakes, the trees of malice, revenge, and black anxiety. These are the hells of those cut off from the divine vision which inspires continually the laborers of Golgonusa. Repeatedly, Blake returns to the theme of Albion's loss of the divine vision, Refusing to behold the divine vision, I'm sorry, refusing to behold the divine image which all behold and live thereby, he is sunk down in deadly sleep. The divine image is Blake's Jesus, the imagination, the archetype. This presence is in all, is the true humanity in which in Blake's telling of the story of the fall, we fall short of through forgetfulness. Sleep is Blake's term, borrowed from Plotinus, who likewise sees that loss as sleep, or as we would say in modern terms, a fall into unconsciousness. The poet, whose type for Blake is Milton, is called the awakener, because poetry, and indeed all the arts, serve to remind and awaken the oblivious sleeper of the higher worlds of the divine archetype. Whereas in Eastern civilizations, meditation and yoga of various modes are ways to reach fuller consciousness, for Blake it is the arts which serve to remind and awaken. Poetry, painting, and music the three powers of in man of conversing with paradise, which the flood did not sweep away. And elsewhere he puts architecture into that list, and indeed architecture is the most immediate awakener. The city of Gorgonusa, therefore, exists in time and is the labor of men and women to realize the holy city on earth as it is in heaven, to build the outer city in the image of the inner city, or in the words of the Irish mystic A.E., to make the politics of time conform to the politics of eternity. Such was Plato's theme and St. Augustine's, as with all sacred cities of whatever religious tradition. 
called Now Speaks of Ispahan as a city whose message is left for us to decipher. He implies, as indeed he well knew, that Isfahan and other of the wonderful buildings of Islamic culture were communications of knowledge, of a total knowledge of our humanity, built with understanding of mathematical principles, buildings that satisfy mind and senses alike, whose adornments of ceramics decorated with flowers and flowing calligraphy satisfy the heart's desire for beauty, and whose subtle use of images reflected in water, light reflect, refracted from gleaming surfaces, awaken understanding of spiritual realities, as do our Gothic cathedrals, embody as they do the whole Christian doctrine in sculptured depictions of Christ and his disciples, which communicate human nobility and dignity and the gentleness of the Virgin Mary and her child. And not in sculpture alone, but in the inner spaces created by the architects who define inner regions and higher regions where our thoughts can rest in sanctuary or ascend into the mystery of rising arches. The art of stained glass transforms the light of common day into the light of vision. The geometric forms of rose window communicate knowledge at once of the visible and the invisible cosmos. Values and meanings of soul and spirit are given an aging form and language in terms of a coherent and total spiritual cosmology. So, with the temples of India, the stupas of the Far East, it is remarkable how the stupa recently built on the river uh, in Battersea Park has wordlessly imposed a kind of reverential behavior on strollers in the park. Little offerings of flowers always to be seen and surely not all left there by Asiatics in exile. It speaks its message of peace as its builders, Japanese Buddhist monks, intended. What is communicated by our commercial cities, our high-rise buildings, our airports and motorways? Power and knowledge of a kind, certainly. Material power and material knowledge, but not the fourfold knowledge which embodies the four regions of our humanity in the unity of wholeness. Not for nothing is New York City known as Babylon. It's wonderful, of course, the sun setting at the end of those great avenues with their streaming cars and red, red and green and yellow lights, or the lit-up towers at night reflected in the East River. But those tall buildings are also trivial, meaningless, some ridiculous fancy placed on their pinnacles. Our cities may proclaim a triumph of material knowledge, but to the soul they tell nothing. Even, perhaps, they proclaim not the divine humanity, but that we are negligible and unloved or tell of some abstract universe not belonging to us at all? Or is New York City also a human awful wonder of God? But what message does it convey to its inhabitants, modern man in search of a soul? It is not for me to say. I love it, of course. It is one of the wonders of the world. But... I grew up in the heyday of the modern movement, 
whose architects and town planners were nothing if not idealistic. In their utopian idealism, they set out to improve social conditions, to provide housing for the workers with every amenity and convenience technology could provide. No one can deny that they are responsible for many excellent things. Le Corbusier, the architectural genius of the movement, in the belief that he knew what humankind needed, built his famous workers' flats in Marseille and even had a plan to replace the beloved Paris we know with a new and better city designed by himself. Yet, I remember Herbert Reed himself, the spokesman in this country for the modern movement, saying that it was a strange fact that although everyone admired Corbusier's building, people didn't want to live in them. What was missing, of course, in the modern movement, essentially an atheist materialist ideology with leanings towards Marxism, was those invisible dimensions the soul inhabits in the works of that movement, though some reflect the cosmic proportions, uh, and they are, but they are not fourfold. These architects and planners were aware of material needs, but not of those of the soul, for few believed in the soul as a universe distinct from the natural body, or in spirit as the ground of reality at all levels. In those well-planned housing estates, Jerusalem, the soul, remains in exile. Maxwell Fry himself said that beauty was not a luxury, but a necessity. But a materialist ideology, lacking the divine image all behold and live thereby, can create only an image of an image. The living inner source of beauty remains hidden. When I was a student at Cambridge, and we were all, like every generation, eager to scan the scene of the brave new world before us, we were supposed to admire Battersea Power Station as a monumental expression of the socialist work ideal. Well designed as Giles Gilbert Scott's building may be to serve its function, and functional was the fashionable word of that day, it is not a fourfold building, and now it is not even functional. Nobody knows what to do with it. Charmed as we may be by a modern railway station or some spectacular airport, unless the meanings and values our cities embody are adequate to our humanity in its full dignity, our, uh, the city will remain a place of exile to the souls of its inhabitants. Communism in those days seemed the epitome of social justice and would create a better world of equality, peace, and cooperation, whereas religion, the opium of the people, would soon be a thing of the past. I have lived to see that the outcome was far otherwise. For it is said that man shall not live by bread alone, and the utopian empire collapsed from within. What will happen to our Western materialist empires remains to be seen, or perhaps we can already see. Blake's phrase, the dark satanic mills, seems to describe perfectly a whole epoch of industrial cities, but it is well to remember that Blake did not use that phrase to describe an industrial landscape, but to describe an inner universe, the, uh, the Newtonian universe conceived as a mechanism of natural causes, 
an ideology which was, to Blake's prophetic understanding, a false ideology in its denial of the immeasurable worlds of soul and spirit, and indeed of nature itself as a living world and not a mechanism. That mechanistic ideology found its expression indeed in those industrial cities built in the likeness of that ideology, and the phrase those dark satanic mills has become current as a recognizable description of a landscape built in the likeness of, it, of an ideology. Do we not always live in the cities we deserve? Yes, you may say, but surely we must consider material needs first. Certainly the architects of the modern movement and utopian socialism cannot be faulted in this respect. But can these needs in all the regions of the fourfold human universe be separated? Who does not know those anonymous building estates where the eye looks in vain for something of beauty on which to rest? We wander in the streets, an image Blake often uses in writing of Jerusalem's lot in the streets of Babylon, but soul never finds its home. After a country childhood, I spent my school years in Ilford, a dormitory suburb where the standard of living was more than adequate, but always with the same sense of inconsolable exile. I remember nothing beautiful there except for trees and little flower gardens in the front of the houses and a grotto and wishing well in Valentine's Park. Can material and spiritual needs be separated? Blake wrote with passion against social injustices and cruelties, but above all he indicted the Industrial Revolution because it was soul-destroying, because Albion's machines are woven with his life and all the arts of life they changed into the arts of death in Albion. The hourglass contemned because its simple workmanship was like the workmanship of the plowman and the water wheel that raises water into cisterns, broken and burned with fire, because its workmanship was like the workmanship of the shepherd. And in their stead, intricate wheels invented, wheel without wheel to per per perplex youth in their outgoings and to bind to labours in Albion of day and night the myriads of eternity, that they may grind and polish brass and iron hour after hour, laborious task, kept ignorant of its use that they might spend the days of wisdom in sorrowful drudgery to obtain a scanty pittance of bread, in ignorance to view a small portion and think that all, and call it demonstration, blind to all the simple rules of life. But is not beauty something only the rich and privileged can afford? Here there is an all-important difference between material wealth and the treasures of the imagination, a difference not in degree but in kind. In the material world, goods and resources are limited, so that if one receives more, another receives less. If a sum of money or a piece of land is shared among a hundred people, each will receive a hundredth part. Equal sharing is no answer, for in material terms this can only mean less and less for more and more participants in a diminishing world of ever smaller parcels. 
No doubt this is an oversimplification, and some will object that creating wealth is precisely the object of an industrial society. More and more cars and washing machines for more and more people. Technology is forever running to keep up with the demand it creates. But in the city of imagination it is otherwise. Blake's spiritual fourfold London Eternal, with its mighty spires and domes of ivory and gold, belongs to all. How can this be? The riches of the imagination are not diminished by the number of participants, but multiplied. Whereas, if a hundred share a sum of money, each receives a hundredth part. If a hundred listen to a concert of music by Schubert or Bach, each receives the whole without diminishment, like the light of the sun. The cathedrals of Chartres and Durham and Westminster Abbey, Botticelli's Primavera, Hamlet and Lear and Odysseus and Figaro inhabit the minds of multitudes without the least diminution. Nor is there envy and rivalry in a world where a shared love of some poet or painter or a childhood within the precincts of some abbey or cathedral forms a bond of mutual delight. The inhabitants of the Sancta Civitas are without number and its treasury is inexhaustible. And that surely is civilization, linking past and future and every race on earth. And do not the poor as well as the rich need beauty and have not other ages provided it? Blake supremely admired the builders of the great cities of art, Michelangelo and the other Florentine architects, who were, like the builders of our own Gothic cathedrals, working according to the true forms of the imagination, recognized and loved by all, because innate in all. The typical city of the materialist civilization may, may meet a certain standard of living, or even of the American way of life with its superabundance of material goods. But what is notably lacking in cities built without the vision of the heavenly original is any trace of beauty where the soul can find peace and delight. There may be stupendous works in terms of size, productivity, efficiency, but the soul is starved. In the absence of beauty, the soul is always an exile. But in the Sancta Civitas, there are no exiles, for no matter whether it be in Rome, Athens, or some little timber-built town in New England, we feel instantly happy and at ease there. The expressions and styles of the eternal city are various, but whether it be in some pictured village in ancient China, in the temples of Athens or southern India, Gothic or Renaissance, the world of the imagination is everywhere and in every age our native country. One other thought I would add. In thinking of examples of beautiful buildings or beautiful cities, we name as examples almost without thinking temples, churches, mosques, the tombs of Christian or Islamic saints, temples of ancient Egypt or Mexico, for there is at the heart of all beauty and of the archetype inscribed within us by whose means we measure the beautiful, a sacred essence. 
Those works which most fully satisfy our thirst for beauty always surely reflect some vision of the sacred, which you may remember His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales used that word in his foundation speech, his speech for, at the opening of this uh, school of art works which most fully satisfy our thirst for beauty always surely reflect some vision of the sacred, some spiritual aspiration. They cannot, so it seems, be created unless this be so. In the sanctuaries of all cultures we feel at home, we feel a sense of familiarity, whereas in the secular cities of the modern West we may be impressed but we feel inconsolably alien, nor will long familiarity make such cities home to our hearts. One has but to sit for an hour in the Piazza Navona to understand that the need for beauty is alike in rich and poor, young and old, all love that generous yet sheltering space, those abundant fountains, those sculptures expressing human energy and delight, the neighbouring churches and monuments, down to the stalls where simple crafts are displayed, little pottery figures of the shepherds and the angel, angels, toys, sweets, all kinds of useless ephemeral things to delight us. The whole world feels at home there because Rome was built to delight mind and heart as well as to house the body. And is it not Italy's immemorial secret that rich and poor were never segregated but share their cities to this day? A bronze boy and a tortoise on the brim of a fountain, a virgin and child on a wall where all may come and go, never without her tribute of little coloured lights. Even in an age that can no longer attain the vision that raised cathedrals on whose sculptures we may read the entire story of man's creation and redemption, as on the portals of Chartres and Wells, we find glimpses and gleams of the Mundus Imaginalis in Piccadilly's, stone, uh, Piccadilly Circus's statue of Eros and Peter Pan, archetype of the poor Eternus, or Rima, spirit of the wild. Do we not all need the bronze lions in Trafalgar Square, such as they are, and those deer that invite us into an imagined forest in Hyde Park, the fountains and dolphins and the tortoises, no less than we need washing machines? Poetry is the house of the soul, I.A. Richard somewhere said, and W.B. Yeats, Blake's first editor and greatest disciple, understood our need to inhabit the world of imagination always. He wrote of that inheritance of stories and of personages and of emotions passed on from generation to generation and I wished for a world where I could discover this tradition perpetually, he writes, and not in pictures and poems only, but in tiles round the chimney piece and in the hangings that kept out the draught. We do not need Disneyland to distract us from distraction by distraction. If the world we daily inhabit speaks to us continually of that invisible inner world, even T.S. Eliot knew how occasional glimpses and gleams of beauty from that other world will sometimes smile in London's wasteland. 
this music crept by me upon the waters and along the strand and up Queen Victoria Street. Old city, city, I can sometimes hear beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendour of Ionian white and gold. Is it not vital that a vision of the world of the imagination all share be reflected in every time and place if we are to survive as civilized beings, that our cities be emblematic cities of the human archetypal universe in its wholeness? Thank you. I feel, uh, listening to Kathleen this morning, that we've, we've heard directly from Blake about the city, um, and I think he's got as much to teach us about architecture as anyone, if not more. Um, just a word for Battersea Power Station. I think the architect of Battersea Power Station was also the architect of the finest 20th century cathedral in the world, which is Liverpool Cathedral. Did you know that? I just bed it off. <laughs> <laughs> All the same, I always think it looks like a table stood on its back, you know, uh, the floor is being washed, it's legs in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, would you like to um, take a, f a few questions oh, yes. for, for ten minutes or so? If there are questions... Um, I hope I should answer as great for British. Just ask if you agree that um, technology and indeed science is, is responsible for the dissemination of technology, uh, for the dissemination of beauty and, and so forth. I mean, as you probably know, I'm quite interested in technology, but I see um, that it's available to a wider range of people, rich and poor, and so, and so forth. And uh, in itself, technology is about use to which it is put. Well, there I would. Think of Eric Gill's definition between the difference between a tool and a machine. A tool serves man, a machine man serves. And technology, again, it's a, it's a good servant but a bad master. And uh, we, we certainly can't go back on it to arts and crafts, although they can always make their contributions, stone masonry and so on. Um, it's tempting to say, yes, technology has ruined everything, but the human imagination should have the power to use technology imaginatively as we used to admire again, going back to my childhood uh, there were wonderful bridges, I think by Mayol, are they in Switzerland, which follow a sort of uh, wonderfully precise geometric forms that are, are very, uh, although they're, they're technological works. They do reveal the sort of cosmic structures. I, I don't want to be negative about technology. It would be too, too easy. Good. <laughs> uh, we have thought that these modernist structures at, at the time 
What buildings? The bridges. The oh, the bridges. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I think they're often time to time lovely modern buildings. I mean, one sees structures in airports and Rome railway station that are there is beauty there. It's a, it's a different kind of beauty. It's a sort of cosmic harmony that seems to be possible. And uh, surely some of Corbusier's buildings are very beautiful. I don't like his uh, Marseille flats and that sort of thing, but the, the church he built, where was it? Um, yes. One can't deny that it, it has a great beauty. Uh, I, I truly don't want to be negative because you are going to be the architects of the future, not of the past, and the, the task is to carry forward the vision of, I would say, wholeness, and to find a way, that is the problem always in every generation, to find a way in the new circumstances in which we live of expressing the timeless values. The values don't change, but the, the materials change, the circumstances change, all sorts of things change, and that is your task. I don't envy it in some ways. <laughs> Did Blake himself uh, um, categorise um, um, the, the before um, uh, qualities of, of uh, good building as uh, consensus, feeling, reason, and vision? Or did, it, did he take that up from someone else? Well, he pointed out that uh, that there were that that everything, not only buildings, paintings, and the cups and saucers and the garments of the city of Gorgonosa, must all speak to the forefront. He was a great admirer of the Florentines, as I said, and also the Gothic cathedrals. He, he saw um, Westminster Abbey as a, as a work of spiritual vision, and he saw St. Paul's as a work of rational thought, and he much preferred uh, the Gothic. He thought the Gothic was the supreme architecture of England, and as a, an apprentice, he worked in uh, drawing the royal tombs in Westminster Abbey. He used to go there all the time and knew it very well and loved it. And he also admired the, um, the, the Greek. He did uh, engrave the illustrations for Stuart and Rivette's Antiquities of Athens and knew a bit about the Greek architecture, which he loved very much. At that time, then he rather turned against the Greek slaves in life because he thought they were warlike people. But he he, he loved that uh, the the Elgin mobs were just coming into England and so on, and, and uh, he he did that work on Greek. Do you know which edition of Stuart Rivette? Mm -hmm. Do you know which edition of Stuart Rivette? Um, I once did, but I don't anymore. But it is it is the first edition. I mean. And there are several volumes out, out there. They came out in... That, it didn't well, how old was he when he was doing the engravings? Mm. How old was he when he was doing the engravings? How long was he doing them? How, I old, should... how old was he? Uh, it was about... about the, I'm very bad on dates. It's about the turn of the 18th century. Okay. Yeah. They wouldn't, if, 
if you're looking for them, Ralph, they wouldn't be signed William Blake, they'd be James Bazeer. Well, they're some of them are, actually. Mm, some of them are. Uh, but that's uh, uh, less important than the fact that he did know them and was working on them and was enthusiastic about them. I've just seen the run of all the initials in the British Library. Yes. Library. James Bazeer, was it? Yes. He for many of the ones he did had Bazeer's They were the more sculptural ones he was doing, not, not so much the architectural. But then the combination of sculpture and architecture in Greece is so very remarkable. There is this sculptural... The Tower of the Winds is, is, is studied in, in the Stuart Rebet, and the sculptures of the picture in it are actually rather flat. They don't have any feeling in the first edition. They, they, they look very sort of precisely chiseled. Um, so I'd be interested to see if they've been done by the influence on the photographs. On? Um, on the later editions, whether they actually looked less, more alive and less, less bad. Yes. It's interesting you say he admired the Florentines, because at the same time he um, attacked uh, the president of the Royal Academy uh, for, um, for what he saw as borrowing um, everything from Italy uh, without, um, without feeling. Yes, uh, he, he was very much down on Joshua Reynolds. Exactly. Uh, rather uh, too much, so perhaps. Mm -hmm. They all had their contribution to make. But one has to see Blake very much as part of the Greek revival. Plotinus was his great influence. And of course, uh, we might someday, with Temenos, read uh, in our reading classes Plotinus on, on the beautiful, in which he uses architecture as an example. And, uh, and uh, Blake, Blake's friend Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, was, translated the whole of the works of Plato and Plotinus into English at that time. And uh, Blake was very much influenced. It's curious, people haven't thought of it before I did. Uh, uh, he was very much part of the class of the Greek revival. That's the context in which I would see him. But rather the philosophy than the architecture, because of course he'd never seen it, he'd never been out of England. There is something to be said about stealing the Parthenon uh, um, uh, works and bringing them to England because it has enabled a very great number of people, especially of our poets, not especially, but uh, it has enabled many, many people to see these marvellous works and wouldn't have seen them if they had been left to decay in uh, Athens. Or perhaps that's a wrong thing to say, I don't know. <laughs> Is that it, Brian? Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.